Well, good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I think it's fitting that we're in a series called Family and About Family on a weekend that we traditionally spend together with family. Uh, my name is Nick Stales. I'm the student director here, and they've given me the opportunity to stand up here for the first time and preach the Word of God to my incredible church family. You might want to hold that applause to the end. I don't know if you're going to want to. I don't know. Anyway, speaking of family, uh, I'd like to share a little bit about my experience growing up. I am what you would call the product of a broken home. Uh, my folks got um, divorced when I was two. I don't have any recollection of life together with them. So I was raised primarily by a, a single mother, uh, a ferocious, tenacious, incredible woman. Uh, and my father had visitation on the weekends when he could make time for me. So as I grew older, I felt more and more like a burden to my father and his new family. I felt, um, I guess the word would be unwanted by my father, but not by my mother. Uh, no, no way. She, uh, there's no real replacement for an absent father, but man, she got close. She's what you would call a... Uh, a strong, fierce mama bear, right? You did not want to cross my mom at any point uh, because she held it down. And I am absolutely blessed to have her in my life. Uh, she's a real blessing for me and my family. In fact, she's actually, I'm going to point her out. I'm going to make her embarrassed. She's actually right here in the front behind my son. Uh, here supporting me, driving two hours at the, at the crack of dawn to get here to support me the first time I get to come up and do this. And that's the kind of woman she is. And what's yeah, yeah. Thank you. What's really cool about my mom is that she prioritized keeping me connected to both her side of the family, but also to my father's side of the family. He was disconnected from his own family, and she knew it was a priority uh, to, to have those people in my life, so she kept me well-connected with both sides of the family. And both sides of that family always, always made me feel welcome and always made me feel like I was part of that community. I have a, um, an example, an aunt and uncle that was always urging my mom and I to come to church. And I would spend the night, sometimes they'd babysit me, I'd spend the night, and we'd get up in the morning and we'd watch Andy Griffith and eat cocoa eats. Every time, I will never forget it. It's a memory that made a, a, a deep impression in my life. And I have another aunt and uncle as another example that would take me on summer vacations with them to amusement parks and to ball games, and I'd hang out with my cousins and, and, and do these incredible things so my mom could keep working and providing for us. This was the kind of family I'm blessed to grow up with. It's pretty incredible having all of these wonderful people in my life because what I lacked in relationship with my father, my family loved me well through, really well through. So why share it? Well, first, I'll share it because uh, we'll open the curtains a little bit. This is kind of who Nick is. This is kind of where he comes from. But I think what's really important for us is as we dig into today's message, into the sermon today, we see a clear picture of what God intended for family and for community. All right, so we're week two of our series. It's called Why Bother? And what we're going to do is explore the book of Genesis. Uh, Rob kicked us off last week in an incredible way, talked about some really awesome, poignant stuff to start our series. Um, what we're going to do today is look at um, Genesis, which is really, it's, it's brimming with family conflict, with community dynamics. 
Uh, and it's, it's a perfect book to work through in this family series. So as we learn about God's design and God's purpose for our lives, and for our family by extension, we see, that his, well, you see his full design for all of human nature, all of humankind. So we're going to look at the first family today. Week two, we're looking at the very first family. We're looking at Adam and Eve. And then really, it won't take long within this story for us to see the very first family conflict. But before we do that, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, man, thank you so much for loving us so deeply. You are, you are so awesome. You are so incredible, and, and your love is so deep. We thank you for just allowing us in your presence, for allowing us to come together as a community of believers in your name. God, as, as we dig into this message today, there's some challenge. And God, I ask that, that as we experience what might feel a little condemning and, and a little challenging for ourselves, that we don't approach it with a crossed arm, checked out mindset, God, but that we are open and receptive to seeing the part that we play within conflict. Father God, as I, as I bring your word to, to my church family here, don't, make it a, allow, don't allow it to be about Nick, God. Allow it to be your word that is heard throughout, that, that your message is carried by the Holy Spirit to the hearts of everyone in this room, that everyone here deeply feels your presence, and deeply feels your love and has a deep desire for reconciliation. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Genesis 3, but before we get to Genesis 3, we need a little backstory. So from the very beginning, starting Genesis 1, we see the writers talking about all of this incredible creation that God's making. Day after day, every day, he sees that it is good. Day after day, and on day six, we see he says it is very good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then in, in chapter two, we jump in and we see a deeper, uh, more detailed description of Adam's creation, the, the very first man, the first human being on earth. And after God creates him, in verse 18, he says, then the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. So we see it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And now we see in the next chapter, something isn't good. It's not good for man to be alone because we were made for community. We weren't made to be lonely or isolated or reclusive. We were made to do life together with others. So God has a solution. He puts the man into this deep sleep, takes one of his ribs, and with that rib he creates woman. And when God brings the woman to be Adam's wife and, and presents her to Adam, he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And ultimately what he's saying here is that we're now a family unit. We are one flesh. Then Adam names the woman. Right? He says that, that she shall be called woman, and this is an act of claiming the woman. He's saying, she's mine, and I'm hers. And he wasn't claiming her in some domineering way like, I own you, you're mine. 
Not at all. He was, he was really displaying his, his loving leadership for her as well as his commitment to her. And then we see that commitment and that love in the next couple of verses. Verses 24 and 25 say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So a new marriage makes a new family. You guys are tracking with me? Pretty simple stuff so far, huh? Excellent. So the man is called to break away from his parents and hold fast to his wife. They are one flesh. They are a family unit now through that marriage. And, 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 and this is in this relationship, they experience this freedom and this safety to the extent where they're naked and there's no shame. There's, they have nothing to hide from each other at all. Right? They, they experience a joyful intimacy together in that relationship. And this was God's design. This is how God intended for it to be. But when we dig in, we're going to see that it didn't stay that way for very long. Whether you've ever gotten married before or not, you were created for friendships, for partnerships and companionship. You're made to have a family. We were created to have people in our lives with which we feel safe from judgment, where we feel free to be ourselves, where we, where we receive and feel joy in their presence. This is a feeling that I get with my wife and kids. I feel these feelings with my life group. Guys, if you guys aren't part of a life group yet, you are, you are absolutely missing out on incredible Christ-centered community with people that want to, will want to celebrate with you through your victories and will, will stand alongside of you and support you through the hard parts of life. You guys need to be in life groups. It is absolutely vital. Absolutely vital. We are created for that community. We were made for community, but, but sin separates us. So we're made for community, but, but sin divides us. It separates us not just from each other, but it also separates us from God. So I would say if we're being honest, every relationship within our lives either has, is, or will experience some kind of conflict at some point. Does that make sense? I think that's a pretty safe assumption, right? Every relationship within our lives will at some point have some kind of conflict. Maybe huge Maybe minimal. I mean, that might be with, with our spouses, with our neighbors, with our friends. So as, as we go through these next verses, as we dig into Genesis 3, what we're going to do is approach them by asking ourselves, how can we experience reconciliation in relationships? How is it that we experience reconciliation in relationships? Well, the first thing we have to do, I'm going to give you three things. The first is that we need to listen to the truth of God's voice. So we're going to now open our Bibles, the good book here. I believe your pages are the same as mine. We'll be on page two, uh, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. Hmm. So here we, we start out with an exchange between the woman and the crafty serpent. And their conversation starts out with that serpent asking Eve, did God really actually say that, that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What he's trying to do here is he's attempting to get her to question God's word and his authority, to question the commands that he gave. God originally told them, eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent asks, did he actually say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He's trying to make God sound more restrictive and less benevolent than he really is. And and what's happening is she's being drawn in subtly. So her response then is, we can eat from the trees in the garden. We just can't eat from the one in the midst of the garden. We also can't even touch it or we're going to die. So she corrects him, but interestingly here, she adds in another part. Because God originally told them they could eat from any except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He didn't say anything about them not being able to touch it. Yet she added that part there. You can actually go back and take a look. It's in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Pastor Rob told me that if I talk for too long, you guys might revolt and take off. It's a holiday weekend, so to keep it tight. So you guys can do your own research on that. Look back, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, to see what God really actually said there. But she added something interestingly, that they're not even allowed to touch it. So what's happening is he's luring her in. She's being pulled in by the deception of the serpent. And then he switches tactics, and he completely contradicts Scripture, and he says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what happens? We see that, that she sees that it's, it's good for food, it's a delight to our eyes, and it's desirous to make her wise. And she eats it, and she gives it to her husband, and he eats it as well. And the problem is, what, what they did here was they refused to trust God. They refused to rely on God and keep his command for their life. And this is the start of all brokenness in the world. This is the very beginning of all of our brokenness. Their relationship with God is now broken, and their relationship with each other is fractured as well. And this division, it begins because they listen to the voice of the liar rather than the truth of God's voice. I'm going to repeat that. The the division begins because they listen to the voice of the liar rather than the truth of God's voice. That's really important to understand. We have this example in our Bible uh, of, of how to live a righteous life. It's this incredible guy, comes around the second half of the book. Uh, his name is Jesus, and, and he gives us an example of how to live righteously, how to live a perfect life. Now, we're incapable of perfection or, or incapable of, of being fully righteous, but we're made righteous as followers. And it's his example we should always look to when it comes to how we should respond and how we should act and react. 
So Jesus, just before his ministry begins, he's led out into the wilderness for a time to fast and for a time to be in solitude. His intention here is that he wants to spend focused and intimate time with the Father before he begins the difficulty of his ministry here on earth. And during this time in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by that same liar, by Satan. He's tempted with three different things, with endless provision, lots of power, and earthly glory. And every single time he's tempted, he refers to Scripture, and he succeeds where Adam and Eve failed. And that was so drastically necessary. It was because he listened to the truth of the Father's voice. And the good news here, guys, is that Jesus lived and he, and he died and he rose again so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could be made right in relationship with our creator, God. So once we're, we're trusting Christ, we're then made into peacemakers. We're made into re- agents of reconciliation. So being a follower of Christ changes our perspective on relational conflict. So as Christians, we've experienced endless mercy. Therefore, we should desire to show and have endless mercy for those around us. Maybe those we're in conflict with, those that have hurt us in our life. We've experienced such tremendous patience from our loving creator that we should now desire as Christians, as followers and believers of Christ, we should desire to show that kind of patience to those around us. So when you think about relational conflict, we should be approaching that with patience, with mercy, and with love. We don't always choose that, do we? I know I sure don't. As believers and followers of Christ, this is our duty. It is our command to follow the example of Jesus. So let's, let's do that. Let's follow the example of Jesus in our lives. The second thing we learn about, that's two. Second thing we learn about family conflict and how to work towards reconciliation is that we must put off false ways of defending ourselves. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's go back to the good book. Same chapter. Verses 7 through 13, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So their eyes are opened. They're naked. Oh no. So they sew together fig leaves and make these makeshift loincloths to cover themselves. But we just learned just a moment ago that they were naked and unashamed. There was nothing to hide from. But now sin has entered the world and they're hiding from each other and they're hiding from God. 
The relationship from God is here, here is now is affected. It says in verse 8 that, that, that God was coming and pursuing them in the garden, and they hid themselves from him. They used to have this, this free-flowing relationship with God where they'd walk with him in the garden and spend time in communion with him. And here now they're hiding from their creator. And then we see God addressing Adam, and he's, he, he asks him if he ate from the tree he was commanded not to eat from. And Adam's response in verse 12, he says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So he defends himself by pointing the blame away from himself. He's saying, God, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Anybody know someone like that, the blamer? Yeah? Yeah, me too. If you don't, it might be you. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. It might be you. It might be you. He's pushing the blame on someone else. He's actually using a relatively true statement here, right? To cover up the deeper truth of his failure. And then God asks the woman, what have you done? What's her response? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Oh, he tricked me. Oh, no, I'm... uh, I'm the victim. The serpent, he deceived me. So she's pointing fingers away from herself as well. She's playing the victim. She's diverting, taking full responsibility and highlighting the role of the serpent. And in order for them to get anywhere towards, and guys, honestly, in order for us as well, to get anywhere towards reconciliation, we must put away these false ways of defending ourselves. We have to. Back to Jesus. It's a problem he faced. He actually addresses it on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 5. He says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus is saying it's easier to see a speck in your brother's eye than it is to see a log or a plank sticking out of your own. Because this is now part of our our fallen human nature. Right? It's our instinct now to self-protect, to cover up, to defend ourselves. It's our instinct to blame others and, and, and play the victim, to avoid taking responsibility. That's now part of the fallen human nature. So take a moment now and think about a relational conflict that you're in currently, or maybe one that you've recently gone through. We're going to ask two poignant questions about that. I don't know if, if for you this relationship is, is, is with your spouse, this conflict with a spouse or with a family member or a friend or a, a co-worker or a neighbor, but regardless of who your conflict is with, ask yourself these two questions. Are you quicker to criticize the other person or to examine yourself? And do you spend most of your time reflecting on and talking about how they screwed up, or are you equally concerned with your role in the conflict? I can say that, that honestly, society says you're the victim, that others are to blame for your circumstances. Whether it's based on race or gender or sexual orientation or socioeconomic status, And when we get caught in these these cycles of of blaming others and and playing the victim, when we're we're stuck spinning around and around and around in these cycles, we cannot focus on restoring relationship with others or with God. 
When we are stuck spinning, I'm sure you at one point have spun around in circles in your life, right? You get dizzy, you can't focus on anything. When we're stuck in these cycles spinning over and over and over, we can not focus on restoring relationship with God or with others. Anyone in the room maybe feeling a little condemned right now like me? Good! Like, like maybe the Holy Spirit is, is telling you and trying to point out to you where, where you've made faults and where you've gotten stuck in these terrible cycles. Maybe he's trying to help pull you out of them. Maybe your God, your, your creator, the lover of your soul wants you to experience his peace. Maybe he wants you to experience reconciliation. Experience what it feels like to feel love within that relationship. I could say maybe, but I promise you he does. I promise you he does. But we have to be willing to, to look at ourselves, to take the plank out of our own eyes, to set aside blaming other people and playing the victim. And instead, we have to step into the light. We have to take a good, hard look in the mirror. And this is, right here is application time. This is, you know, what can I do now where can I go from here? How can I apply this to my life? This is an opportunity right now. And I'm urging you to not take this opportunity to listen to this and then cross your arms and check out. I'm asking you to have an open, receptive heart. At some point today or tomorrow, now it's Memorial Day weekend, most of you guys aren't working tomorrow. At some point in the next two days, set aside a little bit of time and take a good, hard look in the mirror. Take a deep look into your own heart posture and ask yourself some questions. Like, have you been stuck in these cycles? Have you been, been caught in a cycle of just blaming everyone for where you are or, or playing the victim in every circumstance? Where has it gotten you? Are you consumed with, with bitterness or with anger? And do you really think that, that that's where God wants you to be? Because I promise you it's not. Take this opportunity to, to step back and, and analyze yourself. To take a look in the mirror. Deep into your heart. And say, where have I been stuck? Where have I contributed to relational conflict? So... Now we're at a point where we've, we've learned first that, that we need to listen to the truth of God's voice and that we have to put off false ways of defending ourselves. Now the third and final step towards reconciliation is to receive the gracious provision of God. And I've got one verse for you right here. Genesis 3.21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So we've skipped ahead a few, if you've noticed. We stopped in 13, picked it up in 21. So in that gap, we hear God's listening to uh, the complaint or, or the, uh, the defending of themselves from Adam and Eve. He's cursed the, the serpent. He has advised Adam and Eve that now the sin's in the world, everything's going to be different. Adam, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, and Eve, you're going to experience pain in childbirth. This is now part of the world because of what you chose. And he points out how the world's going to be so different now. But then, he says, or it says in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
We, we, we read about Adam and Eve making these little makeshift uh, loincloths to cover up with leaves. But here what we see is that God provides for them a better, fuller covering. And that covering comes at the expense of sacrifice. I, I think you could draw a line to the New Testament as to what that means. This, this is God's way of saying, like, you don't have to hide from my presence. You don't have to try to cover up your shame. You don't have to defend yourself or protect yourself. I will protect you. I will cover you. I will provide for you, and my provision will be better than anything you could ever possibly manufacture yourselves. Sacked from God is the first indication that he has a plan for an ultimate sacrifice. To provide the ultimate covering through Jesus. Because through Christ, he made a way for us to, to be fully accepted into God's presence with no fear of judgment because, because Jesus was judged on the cross for us. And on our own, there's, guys, I'm sorry, but there's no way to cover our, all of our own shame. Our sin is too great, our failures are too many, but the good news is that we don't have to cover our shame on our own. On the cross, Jesus carried that burden of our shame so that we could have a renewed and secure relationship with God, our creator. We could become children of God. That's why it's so important within relational conflict. If, if we're secure in who we are in Christ, we're, we're beloved and accepted and forgiven, then we don't have to win every fight. We don't have to uh, take every criticism personally. We don't have to try to justify ourselves or win the argument or be proven right. Because in Christ, we're free to be honest about our faults. We're free to be honest about our failures because the gospel is that, that even though, despite our failures, God still loves us. And it is like so easy to get stuck in the cycle of blaming others and playing the victim. It's so easy to focus on the faults of other people. It's so easy to get trapped in the desire to want to be right or to want to win the argument. But at what cost? At what cost? It's so much harder in our brokenness and in our sinfulness to look in the mirror and take ownership and responsibility for the part that we play within conflict. Now, I don't want you guys to get me wrong at all. There are absolutely times when we're victimized. There are absolutely times when others are at fault for the circumstances that we find ourselves in. It is never okay to take advantage of anyone, to victimize anyone that is 100% wrong. It should always be condemned, confronted, and stopped 100% of the time. In fact, as Christians, we should lead the charge in eradicating victimization. What an amazing picture of, of God's love, the love of Christ for the world around us if we're the ones leading the charge. As Christians, we should fight for the unborn. We should stand against human trafficking and fight against homelessness and, and drug abuse. 
We should be standing with everyone and helping every human being in every difficult situation, in every walk of life. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be the love of Jesus to the world around us. That's what we should be doing. We should take up that mantle. But this morning, our focus is on acknowledging that we often play a part in the conflicts that we are in with our friends and our families. And we need to be willing to own that. We have to. We were made for loving relationships. We were, we were built for community. But the sad truth is our communion with God is, is affected by our bad decisions, our choices. And this goes the same with other people. But we can learn from this very first family conflict that God's voice of truth will indeed provide the encouragement and correction necessary to work towards reconciliation. Right? We learn that endlessly defending ourselves and pointing the finger away from ourselves never solves anything. It only adds to conflict. But we know that, that we're free to not have to defend ourselves because of Jesus. We have an advocate in Jesus who covers us with the grace of his sacrifice. And that's beautiful. That is worthy of praise. That is worthy of all the amens you have within you. So let's receive God's gracious provisions and, and be the peacemakers that God made us to be. As, as we take the gospel into the world around us, we, we should take up God's ministry of reconciliation and seek peace within all of our relationships. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.